Mike check one two one two to the beach, y'all. What's up? What's up? What's up? It's Eric Marcotte. Thank you for joining me again on another OEM sessions. Today, I'm super excited to be able to share this conversation I had with Matthew Nelson, the executive director of the Arizona Trail. Now, Matt is a mountain biker, and this is how we were able to cross paths through a mutual acquaintance, and then reached out to him to be able to set this conversation up, and I'm going to set it up by telling you his background. So he's been there since 2012 as the executive director. Now he's been doing this for many more moons than that. He's done hundreds of articles about the Arizona Trail. He's written the book on your complete guide to it. But most importantly that I wanted to talk about with Matt is just the complexity of what goes into maintaining, sustaining, and keeping the Arizona Trail available to everybody. So this is a, if you don't know, it's an 800-mile trail from the Mexico-Arizona border at the far south to the Arizona-Utah border at the far north. And I thought, you know what, this is a really good one because this trail traverses it. Uh, this is why I wanted to go over this because there's such complexity in here. We've got wilderness areas, we've got national parks, we've got national forests, we've got BLM, we've got state trust lands, we've got private land, we've got Native American land, we've got unbelievable amount of different terrain, uh, climates, etc. throughout. And what I really wanted to dive into is just the complexity of allowing all of that stuff to keep taking place. So as they were building the trail, they were, well, we get into it a bit in there, but it's, it's about how did they get those extra 400 that weren't already trails? Like, what takes place, and and of the 800 that are uh, currently there, the 100 that are on state trust land, what does that mean for the future of the trail and the complexity of the funding and the support and the conservation of these lands? Now, I say all that to say this, in a similar way that a lot of us go about our days and and, uh, life that we just expect, take for granted for things to be there, uh, I'll give you an example of my training today. I freaking love it. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this at this stage of my life if I didn't enjoy everything that, about it. I love the the preparation in the morning, but I love the preparation in the days and the weeks and the months prior to having that fitness level that I love to enjoy. So I really do not take it for granted. I do not expect it to be there. I'm in, intimately involved in the process of the breakdown and build back up to be able to enjoy that time out there in the outdoors. In the same way, if I'm going to be out hiking or camping or mountain biking or off-road with the truck, I don't take that stuff for granted where I'm heading and that it's always going to be available. So I thought Matt would be a great opportunity to teach through him just where the funding comes from for these public places that we have out here and how we can screw it up or how we can help support and continue to keep that available instead of just assuming and expecting it to be there. So 
Without a, a further ado, I'm going to let you listen to our conversation. Below in the description, you should see a ton of uh, links to more information that you can get on the BLM, on the Native American lands, on the Arizona Trail, of course, state trust lands, the Pittman and Robertson Act, the land, uh, land and Water Conservation Fund, the national parks, the National Forest Service, the wilderness areas. Like I did a ton of stuff to be able to point out this is a very complex trail uh, and there's a lot that goes into it and we really appreciate having that here in Arizona and access that for all of us. So I'll catch you on the other side. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Dr. Aramarkot Show. That's right. It's about to get crazy. Matt yeah. Nelson, Arizona Trail Executive Director. He's He came up to my office. We missed each other like a month ago down in Tucson. I went down to go and check with you, and I, I got another one uh, in queue, a conversation there. I got to wait till they let me let me do it. But um, have you ever listened to any of these interviews I've done? No, I haven't. That's okay. This will um, be my first one to yeah. listen to. But then I'm sure like every podcast, once I hear one, I'll be addicted and I'll just have to give up my life for weeks to listen to all the great stuff you've been doing. Well, I've been trying to do some great stuff, and I think it's great for people who are on the same page. And what I'm doing with this interview, which is sort of stepping outside of uh, like the health and wellness thing and asking athletes about um, and using their examples, if they've gotten some injuries, seeing if we could have seen that prior. You know, so a 20-year-old doesn't have to go through the same um, bumbling and fumbling of training and setbacks and stuff and like can constantly be ahead of things. That's what I was uh, alluding to earlier is if we could get people to see chiropractic or PT or massage or whatever instead of a reactionary thing. So in the same way, uh, I wanted to reach out to somebody like yourself who I like, for instance, this morning, I use some trail systems with the gravel bike. Okay. And tomorrow I'm going to train really hard and long on the road bike. And it's Friday. I will probably do a hike, you know, so I'm always outdoors and maybe on the weekend I'll take the truck out, some off-road trails. I, and physically I look at it and say, how do I continue to perform at this high level? What do I need to have in place? Okay. That's going to be nutrition. That's going to be rest, recovery, hydration. I'm arguing that you need to be doing some strength exercises, some stretches, adjustments, massage. Okay. Forget about that. I look at this and say, how do I make sure or what can I affect, support, be aware of that could take away those trails for all of us outdoor users or the wilderness areas or the national forests, okay? So I thought, what better way than to talk to somebody who helps manage what's going on over an 800-mile trail system that passes through many different um, sections. Okay. So that's why I'm reaching out to you. So let's start super simple. I, th- I think I'll just do that as the intro. So I th- let's do super simple. Matt Nelson, how did you get to this position? And, um, 
where did you come from and all that? Yeah, so uh, I've I've been working for the Arizona Trail Association now for nine years. But before that, I was involved in lots of different levels, both as a volunteer trail maintainer and as a trail builder. And for years, I worked with a lot of inner city youth in, this, in the city of Tucson. And that came from my own upbringing. I grew up in a really small town in eastern California on the east side of the Sierra Nevada Mountains, population 1,500, little tiny town called Big Pine. And I was mostly a road cyclist, lots of great climbs and uh, road cycling there. But there was also lots of trails and dirt roads. So I grew up using these resources. I grew up cycling. I grew up running and hiking and fishing and just exploring the outdoors. And I totally took it for granted because I just assumed it just was. It was part of being a Californian. It was part of being an American. These are resources, you know, for us to use. And then the more I learned, the more I realized that these resources, especially trails, uh, aren't just there. Trails don't just happen. Trails were very intelligently designed, and then they were built, and now they're maintained. And 20, 30, 40 years ago, there was some money that came from Congress to land management agencies like Forest Service and Park Service and others to maintain these trails. That's gone. So which which one was that? Um, which which? Which one went away? Oh, uh, I think funding in general for trails, uh, because so let's start there. Yeah, I th- because I've really been doing a ton of homework and research on this, so I'm going to act like I don't know. But that's <laughs> where I'm going to stop you to yeah. educate the listener on where does this stuff come from? Okay, so where was it originally funded twenty or thirty forty some years ago? Yeah, so it, it came out basically like the general fund. So this is money that uh, was generated by tax revenues and was generated by uh, you know, logging sales and any income that possibly came in to support public lands. So public lands could be national forests, national parks, BLM lands, things that Americans have access to because they're ours. You know, they might be managed by a federal agency, but they work for us. These are our lands and these are our trails. And so when we were in a different situation, both uh, financially as a country, as well as when our priorities were a little bit different, uh, money specifically went into these funds to be able to both build and maintain trails. Okay. So let's stop there again. So now, how is that money distributed in that fund? Oftentimes it goes into, well, everybody within both the public and then federal agencies will say, this is how much money we'd like for the next year to be able to either build and or maintain. And at this point, we're just in the maintenance game. Uh, There's very little money that's allocated for trail construction at all. It's mostly just maintaining the resources that we have. So that's going to be trails. It's going to be trailheads. And sometimes in national parks, it could be things like buildings, water fountains, bathrooms, you know, things like that. And every year we see the amount that, that is going toward the care of public lands and things like trails. That amount goes down every year. And what's dictating that part of it? I th- it's usually the administration, really. So whoever is in charge at the time and what their priorities are. And what we've seen, uh, especially in my lifetime, is that people are becoming a little bit more disconnected from nature. And by the time they make it into, say, office, uh, I, although there are a couple, of, we're fortunate enough to have two senators that spend a lot of time outdoors and even some folks in Congress that, that recognize the importance of public lands and trails and things like that. But I think so many people, once they become politicians, they get more and more disconnected from the things that you and I enjoy every day, you know, clean air, cycling, hiking, well, running. Heck, well, listen, yeah. I mean, so I grew up in Upper Michigan, which was yeah. in a similar way, very, it's a super vast. Have you ever been up to Yeah, yeah, Upper yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, it's uh, incredible and amazing. And yeah, same thing. If I don't didn't know anything else, like I didn't, I took it for granted how amazing that stuff was. Right. So even uh, us, then this is why I'm actually doing this interview with you is some of us that are out there every day may not get to that point where we're like, well, wait a minute. 
is this always going to be here for me? Because you and I both felt that when we were younger. And to your point, the people who are away from it all the time and never use it have no connection either. So there can be a huge disconnect. So that those of us who are seeing like the importance of making sure this is preserved, we really need to step up and like, you know, raise the awareness over here to get people to understand how does this stay there? So I got a question about, do you know the Pittman and Robertson Act? Robertson? Nope. I feel like that was one of the, that may be one of the ones that we're talking about. could be one of the overlapping funds, but this is, um, a tax on guns and ammo and hunting and fishing licenses. And so then that goes into a big fund. Okay. So then this is what actually can um, minimize some of the funding in particular states because the funding is based off of the hunting and fishing licenses that are used and stuff. So, you know, I'm, I don't even eat meat, right? But I understand I need that system in place because there's billions of dollars in that for Bureau of Land Management and such that it it helps my lifestyle, that that whole system is there. I mean, I I just keep an eye on that. And you can see that the hunters and anglers are sort of scared about that because there's less hunting and fishing happening and then there's less outdoor use and then there's less funding for it and then things become uh, defunded so then it looks like it's not managed very well and then we say okay we're we're done with that and now we'll just sell this off and we'll develop over here right so this is what my fear is and I think we need to understand the importance of everybody's role in this and work together to keep all of these things available right yep I agree. Really great point about hunting and fishing. I think, you know, sportsmen is what they kind of consider themselves. And I think they have a very loud voice in a good way when it comes to like a local land management policy and even at the national level. But if you look at nationally, how many people say that they are hunters and fishermen? Nationally, it's less than 5% of the population. Less than 5% of Americans consider themselves uh, hunters or anglers. Now, how many people consider themselves outdoor recreationalists? Uh, In Arizona, it's 55%. So over half the population in Arizona consider themselves to be interested in, participate in outdoor recreation. That's huge. So if a a tax like what you had described, like a user fee, were to be applied, the amount of money it would generate for things like care of trails would be exponential and phenomenal. Now, that's never been been proposed, especially in Arizona or on a national level. And I think it's gotten a lot of opposition because so many of us feel like our taxes should be paying for public lands. They have in the past and they should be in the future. But I think what we're lacking as an outdoor recreation community, so that's hikers, runners, mountain bikers, horseback riders, any anybody who plays in the great outdoors is we don't have a loud enough voice yet. We're out hiking, we're out mountain biking, we're out having a really good time and taking care of ourselves, but we have not yet invested the time and had a loud voice to speak up for what's most important to us. Right. Yeah. I definitely see that. Even I'll see some of the off-road vehicles and they'll come out where I'm training on the road bike. And then they ask me, Hey, should I buy this day pass? And I'm like, why wouldn't you, if that's going to help support and keep this place up and running? I mean, they, they pay the, the registration for the vehicle fee, so they feel like that's enough, but they got a $40,000 off-road um, dune buggy, basically, and they can't spend $10 for the day to use it to support the system that allows that to happen. But I can understand what you're saying. We have to acknowledge that there can be a frustration if you're paying the taxes and you feel like that should be going towards it and you don't feel like it is. 
then the representation in those positions in government needs to recognize like the importance to our community if 55 percent of them are using it or more we've got to like show up and and be represented in that way right so you exactly be with that exactly okay. so that's one of the things that i would really encourage people to do is that if you enjoy trails and you enjoy state parks national parks national forests wild spaces and most everybody listening does because statistically people move to this state because of access to the outdoors they don't move here because of the mall, really. Maybe one or two people do. But the reality is we have access to you know more miles of trail in Maricopa County than any other county in America. And there's more national forest land and trails on those forest lands. That's why people are moving to Arizona and choosing to stay here, raise families here. Uh, but not enough of us are contacting uh, our state representatives and saying, I live here because of outdoor recreation, make this a priority. And continuing that message up the chain all the way to Congress, saying that outdoor recreation should be considered, caring for public lands and trails and open space is a priority. Right. So let's let's transition to the trail itself, right? Can you give me or give us a little background on, I feel like it started, it was at 85? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it started uh, just as a concept. One guy who was a Flagstaff area school teacher by the name of Dale Shewalter, he'd worked a lot throughout Arizona, uh, both as a surveyor, a geology surveyor, and he worked for the Forest Service as well. And so he got to see all these different amazing mountain ranges, both Mogollon Rim Country near Pine, Flagstaff near his home, and then a lot of the mountain ranges in southern Arizona. And at one point, he kind of had a vision of a single trail connecting all these mountain ranges and then the rim and then Flagstaff, the Grand Canyon, and all the way to Utah. And so he started walking. And whenever now, he when had he time. he did that, I had the question of, you know, this is 35 years ago, yeah. right? So um, did he only use trails at that point? At the time, there was there weren't enough trails built and connected, and so what he had so he'd to had do, to go from point to point and then like get back you know like five miles later to another section okay. exactly. And he did a lot of overland walking, like well, what if there was a trail here to connect the Rincon Mountains with the Catalinas, with the Huachucas, and so on? And so he did a lot of exploration, and after a while, realized well, this is actually possible, and so started sharing this concept with everybody who would uh, give him attention. And at the time, it was Forest Service, BLM, State Park. And as he started to share the story, it started this grassroots effort to build the Arizona Trail. And so we started off with just segments that were already built and then looking at a map saying, how can we link these together? So that I think that's something that's pretty important to, or, uh, for me to understand is the difference between like the Forest Service, the BLM, the state parks, wilderness yeah. areas, yeah. etc. So let's say you come and you – so basically the trail – is it 800 and... It's about 800 right now, about 800 take. even, yep. And it starts border of Mexico, Arizona, goes to the border of Utah yeah. and Arizona, okay? And let's say as he was uh, was going in through development, there's like a five-mile section where there's no um, continuance through on one trail. How does that move forward? Can you, like, if it was BLM uh-huh. or if it was state park or if yeah. it was wilderness or if it was private land, is there anything yeah. with that? Yeah. Th- what's interesting about working with all these different agencies, and, and you mentioned most of them, you know, there's state land, there's county, there's Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, National Forest Service. Uh, they all have slightly different rules mm-hmm. in how they manage land. And so the 
our organization was really founded because all these different agencies love the idea of an Arizona trail, but none of them spoke the same language. And so by this nonprofit organization forming, it became the cohesive unit of the citizen effort that could then integrate uh, input and rules and ideas from all these different agencies to kind of bring it all together. So we were born out of a need uh, to have somebody kind of lead the way. Uh, that wasn't a federal or, or state agency. Um, but let's say we wanted to build a new piece of trail. It's usually the first piece is like design. Like how can we build this sustainably? And there's a whole science and a little bit of art as well, but a lot of science that's uh, it's a combination of geology, hydrology, and sociology. Yeah, so who's getting uh, consulted with that? Uh, at this point, it's uh, we usually take the lead on it as the Arizona Trail uh, Association. But one of, uh, one of our rules is that uh, before we submit uh, a trail proposal to the land management agency, it needs to have been studied by at least five professionals. And so that could be me, it could be our trail director, it could be somebody who's done trail design specifically for mountain biking, might be an equestrian group, because as a, as a non-motorized trail system, we welcome everybody, hikers, mountain bikers, horseback riders. And so we like to get all those different perspectives before we put a line on a map and then go to the agency. Now, once we give it to them, then it has to be studied for cultural resources. So an archaeologist will walk the entire length of the proposed trail looking for cultural resources. If they're found, we have to move the trail. And that happens all the time. After the archaeologist approves it, then a biologist takes a look at it. Are there threatened and endangered species? Does it go too close to a water source? Uh, maybe it goes too too close to an old growth tree, or maybe there's an, a nesting area for Mexican spotted owl, so we have to move the trail. Once, uh, once we move through archaeology and biology, and then it gets put out to public comment. So they'll float it out to the public saying, what do you think about this through the NEPA, National Environmental Policy Act process? Once it's approved, then we get the stamp of approval, and sometimes the process I just described takes a year, a year and a half, sometimes longer, uh, and then we're able to build it. And so the trail construction is kind of the fun part, and that's where we try to engage as many people in the process as possible because what we found is that people who are actively involved in trail construction are the people more likely to be the trail maintainers and the supporters and the funders into the future because building trail is really rewarding. Uh, it's this beautiful exercise in working with the land in a really intentional way, knowing that the hard work that you're putting into it will soon become a pathway where people will have these incredible experiences for, for decades. Yeah, and that's what equity in there as well exactly right? Yeah. exactly you, right you so help build that experience for that next user and yep. want to hear how th how their take was it right? yeah okay so yeah there's quite a ma i mean how many of those types of sections had to happen over the last 30 or 40 years hundreds literally Man. yeah <laughs> because originally you know i think there was about 400 miles of usable trail that was identified that already existed so then it was a matter of filling in those gaps and sometimes the gaps were filled in temporarily with dirt roads but that really kind of goes against the nature of a trail and a non-motorized trail experience and so a lot of what we're doing right now is looking at those big long dirt road segments that were used to link the trail segments together so we're building trail to get it off of the dirt roads it. so, so it's an ongoing so yeah, process I, like i said i've tried to do Quite a bit of homework on this stuff. So the, I believe there was 43 sectors. Correct, yep. And they range, what, maybe 10 miles to 25 Very miles. good, Eric. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And you have <clears throat> entrance and exit points on each of these things. Um, you know, who... You can, if you're unfamiliar with it, you can reach out to stewards who could guide you and give you some information and what best time of year and what to expect and yeah. all those things, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, 
you can uh, like I know like you can download the apps and get all the maps and get all the GPS data and all of these things. It's it's a really well thought out, honestly, experience for the person, mm-hmm. so that you're not going into it blind and just uh, willy nilly. So, <clears throat> is there is there any like camping? Do people do when they get out there and they start to do? Let's say they want to do the point to point. Yeah, um, you know how. How does that go for people? Because there's certain places where you could or should or shouldn't. Yeah. For the most part, uh, outside of national parks, and it only goes through three national park units. So we've got uh, Grand Canyon up north, Saguaro National Park near Tucson, and then the very beginning of the trail is inside what's called Coronado National Memorial. And that one doesn't have any camping in it because it's, it's just a couple mile section. But those other two national parks, you have to get a permit in advance to camp in the national park. But for the rest of the trail, so we're talking 760 some miles, no permit is needed. And so all the camping that's done there is just wild and primitive. And so what we try to do is guide people through the process of when you're choosing a campsite, here are the best practices. So you have a minimal impact on the landscape. Don't camp too close to water, you know, things like that. Um, but otherwise, you just you hike or bike or run as far as you can in a day and then you set up a tent if you choose to sleep in one but a lot of people just sleep out under the stars because in Arizona weather is usually pretty stable doesn't rain that much don't have a lot of bugs so you can kind of travel light and fast on the trail but it becomes um, a really pretty like intimate experience between you and the landscape and so many people that don't live here think that most of Arizona looks like the Mojave Desert, you know, which is unfortunate because we have... Yeah, I don't uh, even see anything like that. Nothing. That's pretty much where I'm yeah. yeah. Canyons and mountains and forests. And it's, it's this beautiful pathway that was intentionally designed to avoid cities. And so you get to see high peaks right near the border and you see beautiful canyons like near the Gila River and Grand Canyon, obviously. So depending on where you go and what time of year, you're going to get this incredible, like taste of biodiversity that only arizona serves up got it how about is there do you feel like there's any opposition to having that trail no honestly that's one of the things that continually surprises me is that the amount of support it gets from all sectors and it's one of the the like the least controversial things that i've ever worked on in my whole life i just did a trip back to washington dc to meet with members of congress to talk to them about the arizona trail and the importance of protecting public lands and it is overwhelmingly loved by people as far left and as far right as you can possibly imagine. Like a great example of this is that our two biggest champions, uh, in Congress at the time that it was designated a national scenic trail, because that takes an act of Congress in order for that to happen, which that happened in uh, 2009, is that uh, John McCain and Raul Grijalva were our two biggest supporters. Now, those two share nothing in common, and I don't think they've ever agreed on anything ever except maybe the Arizona Trail. But people see it as an economic engine, which it absolutely is. They see it as a health and wellness pathway, which it absolutely is. And it's a way to, you know, to stimulate the economy in rural Arizona and then just connect citizens with, with the landscape. And I think the thing that we as an organization do best is, is get people involved in like citizen stewardship. And that's the beauty of it because I was just a trail user. And then once I realized how much work it takes to maintain a quarter of a mile trail and then apply that to an 800 mile trail, I'm like, wow, I have to do my part. And once I got involved trail building and trail maintaining, I realized this is even more rewarding than a bike ride. So trying to get more people involved in that experience. Right. So we'll come back to that in a second. But the when you're designing the trails and you have the geologists and the archaeologists and you have all of this, you have to pass it through these filters to keep moving forward. Because uh, I see well, – I've been here for 12 years now, I think. 
and the development is insane. Okay, the sprawl is going farther and farther, and it's taking longer and longer to get to what was really close of wide open, and that's only right. a decade. Okay. How about, is there any fear on that? And like, what could affect that? Like where you have segments of the trail that are fairly close to, let's say, oh, wow, there's a big pocket for mining here or something like development here, state trust land that they could sell off. And I mean, that's something that I'd be curious about. How does, how does that, are you planning for that or are you picking this spot because it's the best for the trail and then trying to have things in place to minimize that type of a situation to happen? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think most people that I've talked to assume that because the trail's in place and because it's a national scenic trail, one of only 11 in America designated by Congress, that'll be protected in perpetuity. That is not true. (laughs) The trail is constantly under threat, and I spend a lot of my time trying to find ways to minimize those threats. And so sometimes it's looking ahead 10 or 20 years to think about what can we be doing now to help protect the trail. So as these communities grow further east and further west and get closer to the trail corridor, what mechanisms can we put in place to protect them? Uh, And the biggest threat, I feel like you mentioned, is this like state land. You know, there's 9 million acres of state land in the state of Arizona, and it's supposed to be sold at auction to the highest bidder to benefit state schools. Yeah, so so say what that is. Basically what happens is it's almost like a lease, right? And so there's money as you spent and there's different types of uh leases with that there's a a small fee for i mean you could you could get the land and then you could um if i remember correctly because i definitely have been on top of this stuff to see like what is the impact of this there's like a base fee so when you buy the land that money is funded for the schools which is totally awesome and the state needs to make money off of this stuff so it can't really just sit because then the schools don't get what they need this is why it's such a um complex thing that we're talking about because everybody's involved uh, you know hunters and fishers and school kids and then people developing because that's how they make their money off of new homes and stuff like this. It's like this crazy situation. And then the other side of it is they're sort of leasing it at a higher rate to different organizations or different um, commodities where they get more money in that situation, but it actually is like a, it's a higher threat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So imagine, so a map of the state of Arizona, if you've ever looked at like a topographic map, sometimes there are these um, squares that are different colors. The different colors show different land management uh, units. So it might be Bureau of Land Management, but 9 million acres in the state of Arizona is state trust land. And so every one of those is essentially could be for sale. So if you wanted to buy 40 acres... Let's say you and I wanted to buy it Uh and make our own trail system and then charge users to come in and do that as like the the Matt and Eric um, experience trails, we could do that. Yep, absolutely. And that state, when we buy that, gets a certain... uh, And it's a certain length of a lease. Correct. So if you buy the land outright, it's yours forever. And so that's what we see like developers are doing, right? You'll buy state land, you'll develop a whatever, a water park, (laughs) not likely, but you know, something like that. And then it's yours to use for for whatever. But organizations have like ours have worked with counties and cities and others to buy a right of way, which is like a lease essentially, which is just a, a, 
allowing to pass through a piece of state land. And so uh, almost 100 miles of the Arizona Trail statewide is just on a right-of-way through state land. It's 15 feet wide, and we, along with the county, had to pay full value of the land. Even though we don't own the land, we're just being given permission to cross it. So the money goes into the trust, benefits the trustees, which is state schools, and the system works pretty well. But the land that our right-of-way is on can sell at any time. So if you and I come along and decide to... So listen, so that's what, 15% of this is essentially... For sale. Always at risk. Yep, exactly. Now, the state land department has been in the business for a little over 100 years, and they've only sold a small percentage of land. And they're in it for the long game. They don't want to sell it all immediately because they have to be able to benefit the trustees, which is our schools, in perpetuity. So selling it very intentionally at its highest value. And so I think what they're constantly doing is they have a lot of real estate professionals who work for the land department to, when you and I come along and say, hey, we want to buy this remote piece of land, they'll look at it and they might say, oh, okay, it's valued at this. This is what we're going to charge you. Or they might say, no, we don't want to sell it because in 50 years, it's going to be worth a lot more. So although it's in theory for sale, they don't have to sell. And so the right of way that we uh, that we essentially are operating on right now There are some areas where I think it's safe for 10 years, but then there's other pieces of the trail where I think that land could sell any day. Uh, And we as an organization just don't have the money available to attempt to buy the land outright. So I think that's where it's it's most threatened. Okay, so that was my original question a little bit back while back is that there is like a uh, i don't want to say opposition to the trail i guess that wasn't the right word but the threat yeah there is like different interests to use that land that's more of what my original opposition question was yeah what could affect this yeah that is something that's pretty significant and you guys have always have to i don't want to say watch your back but are really looking for sure yeah at what can affect this yeah and that that there's a great example of this very scenario uh that's happening right now because in pinal county so just south of us there's a segment of the trail that goes through uh what's called the ripsy wash and it's incredibly beautiful it's um kind of like rolling upper sonoran desert and then you descend to this canyon it's a phenomenal mountain biking just south of the gila river and that segment of trail uh was a huge chunk of land which just was just purchased by asarco ray a giant mining company because their ray mine which is one of the biggest in the state um they've exceeded their capacity to store mine tailings they're still mining copper and they're still generating mine tailings but they've reached their capacity to store waste rock so they bought state land nearby and they're going to store waste rock inside this canyon just so happens that the trail goes through there so the bad news is we're going to lose a beautiful scenic piece of the arizona trail because the land has just been purchased the good news is asarco has agreed to pay the full amount to relocate the trail and to relocate a trailhead wow that's wild yeah so how far do they have to bring those old those tailings uh mileage wise it's probably only about 12 miles from from the from the site so, but I think it'll all be brought in on trucks and dumped. The big, big trucks. Yeah, yeah. I. So this is what's interesting about this. So I, my family, like iron ore mining. Yeah. Like the open pit. Yeah, yeah. And for a summer, I drove those big trucks, two hundred ton trucks, <laughs> and then they're four hundred, five hundred tons. Um, for just a summer, you know, as a summer student, made money to basically pay for undergrad. But wow. So, I. How I feel hypocritical to argue about a mine because that's how I was supported as a kid, right? Yeah. Um, and also, too, I mean, I feel hypocritical because 
people don't mine unless there's uh, some money to be made, and the money to be made is on the resources in the earth, and the resources are used for goods and services and stuff like my phone. You yeah. know, so. I try to do something with what I'm using and make aware, like, hey, I've had this phone for two and a half years now, and I'm trying to go until I never need, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that's why these conversations to me mean something and take time out of my day to share a story where we can talk about, like, that mind may not be any bigger if we don't keep asking for more goods. Yeah, you know what I mean? Exactly. And it's not like it's a new mine. It's not like a new mine being proposed that's going to have this massive impact. This is one that's been operating for 80-some years. Uh, and by finding a way to store excess mine tailings nearby, they're extending the life of the mine, which, like you extending the life of your phone, is pretty important because that's already a massive impact on natural resources. So if we can continue that impact crater in one single spot instead of just shutting the thing down and moving on to the next great place, I think it makes sense. Um, Do I like the fact that this piece of trail is being destroyed? Nope. Do I like the fact that they're willing to replace it with better trail? Absolutely. And I think that really delicate compromise is one of the nuances of my position, you know, talking to the general public and how they feel about the trail, talking to the mine company to figure out how can we achieve the best possible result. And nobody comes away with it completely happy. But that's the nature of compromise. And I think when you're dealing with public lands where there's resources that are being extracted, resources that are being used for outdoor recreation, it's finding that balance and helping people realize that, you know, it doesn't have to be outright opposition, that it can be this uh, this delicate compromise, you know? Mm-hmm. So then let's go to what you were talking about, like volunteering and stewardship yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's a huge aspect of the Arizona Trail, right? Yeah. So how do you... Uh, to to help manage that 800 miles, of course, you're not going to be doing it just a handful of people. We need how many people to do that? Yeah, on average, um, 3,000 a year. That 3,000 people help care for the trail on average. It's probably more than that, but a lot of people don't report their volunteer hours or they don't sign up. They just show so up at an event like and help. like 50 to 100 people a day working yeah. on the trail throughout the year. Yeah. More or less. Sometimes we'll do these big public events where we'll get a few hundred people out, but a lot of the care and maintenance that goes into the trail is uh, just a couple people to go out at a time. So it might be you and your friends. Hey, what are you doing this weekend? Let's go for a ride on Saturday, and let's go maintain the trail on Sunday. And they're both equally fun. And in a way, it's like it's an investment in your outdoor recreation future because the better maintained that trail is, the better your hiking, running, riding experience is going to be. And just the community that forms, I mean, it's like with any of the outdoor recreation pursuits that we do, like the community ends up being everything. Like the race might be fun, but the people that you're racing with, that's really, that's what kept me involved for so many years. And what I love about this organization is who it attracts. And it's a really wide diversity of people and ages and ranges and everything you can imagine, but they're all out there connecting with the land in a really wonderful way, helping to care for it so that other people can have this amazing experience. Yeah, so what does the, the trail maintenance look like? Are we talking about just litter pickup? Or are we you know, moving things basically like the big rains that came through? Right. How does that affect the trails? Yeah. yeah. What, what, what does uh, stewardship look like? Yeah, it takes constant maintenance uh, because the path itself, the more recently designed and built trail is easier to maintain because it was very intelligently designed based on a lot of the science I described before. But some of these older pieces of trail that we inherited as part of this trail system uh, need constant maintenance. 
maintenance because they weren't very well designed. So a lot of what we're doing is trimming the brush from the corridor. So it's a lot of like pruners and loppers. And if you've ever spent time hiking or mountain biking in the Sonoran Desert, cat claw acacia, which is the stuff that tears at your flesh, we're constantly digging that out of the ground because it quickly encroaches on the trail corridor. So a lot of it is trimming and brushing. Uh, and it's not just two feet wide, although the trail you see and we use is about two feet wide. The corridor that we try to clear is six feet wide by 12 feet tall. So that accommodates uh, horseback riders. But it also, uh, when we maintain the trail that wide, most trail users never notice that there's brush missing, but it's easier to maintain over time because you're not constantly clipping and trimming just that two foot wide corridor. And then beyond that, every time it rains, every time there's a wildfire, every time there's some type of you know natural disaster, which happens here seasonally, then the trail is usually impacted in a negative way. So that's digging out drains that have been specifically put there to catch water. Sometimes it's getting boulders off the trail. And then in big events like this past summer, we had the Woodbury like the fire. fire. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear. Yeah, yeah. The Woodbury fire was, you know, I bite my nails literally every summer, knowing that at some point there's going to be a major fire that'll affect the trail, and then at some point it's going to rain and it'll blow the trail out. And that's what happened with the Woodbury Fire. 150,000 acres burned. We lost about 30 miles of trail, uh, and then it rained, of course. Now, the good news is it rained really lightly that summer. Uh, we didn't get huge monsoon rains after the fire, so it didn't get completely blown out. But um, we had folks from our organization go in as soon as it was safe to get back into that mountain range to assess what the damage was. And it most everything burned significantly to the ground to ash. So we lost all of our wooden signs. So it's really hard to find your way now. And then the subsequent rains that happened in the winter time uh, really washed the trail away. That's where the most was. So there was yeah. some fire. It would be a little different than uh, that fire, but there was a fire where I train on on the bike every time or every day. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, it's completely changed the the way the the water runs off now. Right. Um, and they've got to change the way that the road maintenance is. I mean, because I've been doing this again for over a decade and riding these roads literally, yeah, probably thousands of times a year yeah. on some of these sections. And it's completely different. Not only just the animals, just the way that they're moving through there now differently, but the way that the the water and washes are running off. They're in different sections of the road and the road's getting chewed up underneath differently yeah so that i i can imagine a small two-foot trail being decimated by you know 30 minutes of rain because there's yeah. nothing stopping it anymore right exactly i think the you know the bad news is the superstitions are cooked the good news is it'll grow back that's what happens uh, i think both in the west i've seen Many of my favorite places burn up, and now I'm just in my lifetime starting to see some of them regenerate. A hundred years from now, I'm sure it'll be a completely different environment, and we'll, we won't really know that there was a fire there. The trail itself, although it might be compromised, it can be rebuilt. You know, Cairns can be erected to help you find your way. We can put lines on a map. We can create GPS data. So even if people aren't walking on a beautifully groomed pathway, there's still a way through the landscape. And there's a lot to be said for walking through a charred landscape and thinking about things like climate change, thinking about things like um, wildfire management, because we worked really hard to make sure that no fire started in national forests for almost 100 years. Now we're paying the price for that because of the heavy fuel load. So I think 
people that um, that are conscious about some of these issues. And when you're out there in wilderness, you have a lot of time to think. And so I think that's what we try to do is educate people so that when they're out there, they have an opportunity to you know interact with the landscape in a really intimate so how do you, way. How do you do the education part? I think mostly through like you know website, through Got the it. app, newsletters, but what about social like media, almost yeah. A, yeah. a quiz as you're doing a section of um, a trail. And they f- complete the quiz after the end of it. I like it. So that they're looking for certain uh, aspects of geology. Yeah. And then what does that mean when you hit the 4,000 mark and there's yeah. no longer saguaros yeah. and now it changes to this? Like that could get, especially kids, right. more excited about the things. And then they'll see the changes as they've learned that fundamental thing about how nature moves and adapts to stuff. And then when you hit it with a stimulus like fire or rain or a dry spell of six months, what happens and then how does it uh, change? Like yeah. I feel like you could really section the like quiz sections, right? Yeah. Like make these people uh, get out there. And of course it is interactive because you have to, you know, conquer the land, but there can also be like this, like I'm not forcing them, but just guiding their observation on what can be, uh, missed if they're not looking for that stuff yeah i i worked as an outdoor guide for many many years grand canyon mexico lots of different places and i always felt like that's what my main job was was to help like kind of plant these seeds or ask a question so that people were being a little bit more observant of their surroundings not talking about their last great trip or their next great trip but but where you are right now and i think time in nature uh provides that opportunity you know and that's probably my favorite thing about the arizona trail is how once you're out there on it it's a lot of solitude even though it's a popular trail and it's internationally known. People come visit here from around the world to either hike or bike the whole thing all at once or just a little section at a time. Once you're out there, it's not very crowded. It's not like being at, you know, fill in the, yeah, fill in the blank like a few, park. A few yeah. minutes from the trailhead and then you're kind yeah. of on your own, right? Yeah, exactly. That's always how it goes anywhere. Yeah, right. On trails, but... Um, so how much of it have you gotten to do? And, and I've do done, you have some yeah. favorite sections? Yeah, I've done probably about three quarters of the trail. Most of that was before I took this job. Uh, it's, it, it is so busy as the executive director of this organization that I don't have as much playtime outdoors as I used to. Uh, but there are a few sections that I've not yet seen. And one segment that I intentionally avoided because it was just on really chunky dirt roads. And I started to mountain bike a portion of it. And I thought, wow, if this goes on for 30 miles, I have no interest. And that was just south of the Flagstaff area in a region we call Happy Jack. So it's kind of between Mormon Lake and Highway 87, the Beeline Highway. And we just, this past year, finished an 18-mile trail project to replace all those dirt roads with single track. And so this summer, I can't wait to actually go check it out because that was a project we worked on as an organization um, for about three years in earnest to, to build those 18 miles of trail. So that's a segment I haven't done that I'm looking forward to. And then uh, the interior of the Mazatzal Mountains in the middle of the state, so not far from Four Peaks, the largest wilderness area that the Arizona Trail goes through. I've only seen a really tiny portion of that. Uh, and for many years, it was almost impassable because the trail was in such deep wilderness, it was really hard to maintain unless you hiked in for two or three days to maintain the trail, then to hike back out again. So we uh, rounded up enough money to be able to pay a conservation corps, which is like a group of young people who camp out for eight days and do trail work. Um, they spent uh, m- literally months brushing the corridor through the Mazatzal Mountains. Um, and so now it's it's passable again, and people are really enjoying it. So now that the, all the hard work is done and you can find the trail, I'd like to get out there and check it out. Wow, that's that's pretty pretty rad. Are you uh, how much have you biked most of it? Most too? of it, yeah. I've seen you know there's a lot of sections that are not bikeable. 
one, because they're either way too hard and the trail wasn't really intentionally designed for mountain biking. And again, it's because of these older historic pieces of trail that we uh, adopted. Uh, but then some of it goes through designated wilderness areas. And wilderness is off limits to any kind of mechanized transport. Yeah, I was going to ask yeah. to make sure everybody knew that that's what that is. Like why you can't do... Uh, mountain bike up Humphreys is yeah, a wilderness area. Exactly. Right? There are spots where you yeah. can do that stuff. Yeah, Wilderness Act at 1964 says no mechanized transport, and that includes mountain bikes. And so what we've done as an organization, because I love mountain biking, and that when the trail was developed, it was right around the time that mountain biking was taken off in the West. And so as the Arizona Trail became a thing, mountain biking was integrated as one of the you know kind of core activities. But outside wilderness areas, uh, it's mostly mountain bikeable and really fun, hard, but really good stuff. Uh, but then in areas where it does go through wilderness, what we've done is figured out, like, what's the most scenic way to get around that wilderness area? So it's not just hop on the highway and roll down the road. It's, okay, here's a dirt road and a trail and another trail and a dirt road and maybe a little bit of paved road to get you to that next spot. Uh, but the eventual goal, the long-term goal, is, is, is an 800-ish mile pathway for hikers and mountain bikers to get from Mexico to Utah. And so we have a lot of work to do, a lot of trail to build still, and a lot of trail to maintain, but it's a legacy project. For sure. Do you... How about natural springs? Are they run, are you running close to those, like for uh, support along yeah. the trail? Yeah, water is by far the most important resource on the Arizona Trail. And where water exists really guides how many miles you do per day. Whether you're hiking, running, mountain biking, doesn't matter. You're really going from water source to water source. And in some parts of the trail, you'll go 20 or 30 miles without a, a natural source of water. And so if you're on foot... That could be three days, and that's a lot of carrying water. So people that do long-distance trips are really watching weather patterns. Snow melt in the winter, so you'll have good, you know, hopefully good water in the springtime. And then if you start in the early fall after we've had a healthy monsoon season, you're more likely to find, you know, surface water as well. But one of the things we've done to kind of make the trail safer and to take a lot of the guesswork out of it for people is we've identified every water source within a mile of the trail. And that's available on the app, it's on the website, it's on all the maps, so that as you're planning ahead and you get to the next water source, you can look at it and be like, wow, there's cattle standing in it and defecating in it. Do I really want to filter this and drink it? And if you look at the map and you go, well, the next water is 20 miles away, the answer is yes. I'm going to deal with the cow poo water, you know, in this particular instance. Wow, that's wild. So in 2013, I did a ride from here to Sedona. Yeah. On the mountain bike. Yeah, yeah. Be Seven Springs, 24, I can't remember all of them. Big day. It's a video. It's super cool. <laughs> and, but the original idea behind it was <clears throat> to only use food that's locally grown in Arizona yeah. and then only source water from here. Yeah. And uh, the video guy, I love him. I've worked with him since. Um, he was like 21 at ASU student. So, like, the concept of being... Like the energy that I'm expending in my legs and lungs and burning that was coming from this land that I'm traversing was like a one. It was a little bit over his head. And maybe I was ahead of the time in like presenting that concept because I couldn't explain it very well. But that is why I was asking about the water thing, because I want to do something like that where I am, uh, you know, because we are we are relying upon this land providing us with everything we have whether it's these microphones or it's the internet to share this conversation or it's the land to harvest the sun and grow these plants and then to to nourish our bodies i i like i want to make a little story or like connect all of that stuff in a way and, I, and that's why i would love to maybe use parts of the arizona trail to yeah. show that 
you know. So I, I like to create absolutely. Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's. it's I, I'm glad you brought this up, and I've only had this conversation with a few people. But you know, through hiking or long distance trails have become a little bit more popular in America, and I think that's for a couple reasons. One. Um, the whatever you want to call them millennials or whatever comes after millennials um, are seeing less value in higher education and the traditional job market than they are the experience. And so people are more likely to be like, okay, I am going to take two months off or six months off and go for a hike. And the reality is once you do one long distance trail, you're going to have a really hard time going back to whatever normal was before that because you're looking at what's the next one. Continental Divide Trail. What's the next one? Appalachian Trail. What's the next one? Pacific Crest Trail. What's the next one? Oh, I'll go to New Zealand and do the Te Aurora Trail. And it just keeps going and going and going. But I feel like the the next phase uh, in like the sustainability movement for these long distance trail systems and the people that are using them are um, how can I only eat local food or how can I harvest what I need along the way without negatively impacting natural resources, you know? Uh, and I feel like whether that's hunting small game or, you know, gathering things, uh, I, I think that's an important part of interacting with nature. Well, I think when you said you're alone a lot out there and you just have your thoughts and stuff, I think that's what happened for me is I've, done fairly well on the bike for some time and tomorrow again i'll do it yesterday i did it just immense energy expenditure yeah and then i look at the foods that i'm eating and i try to have everything local and organic and all this stuff to think i want to have less impact because i feel like in some ways it's selfish for me to pursue some of these things but if i can make people aware about how to stay healthier through it or to take care of the land through it i like have convinced myself like i'm doing something good but it it, we do draw upon a lot of resources with our lifestyles and i I just really would want to be using it appropriately so 100 years from now this conversation can still last and say oh my god there was people back then thinking about us today and they were conscious about their choices but the infrastructure was set up in a way too skewed for overuse and under supporting yeah very well said i think that we've always used trails uh from the very beginning of time really and i think even the trails we use now were traditionally animal trails that then became footpaths as people were pursuing animals to hunt them which then later became either recreation trails or in the in-between they were used for uh, resource extraction you know people that were on mules or horses to get down to hand harvest minerals from a mine then come back out eventually you know some of those became hiking trails and so when we're out there we're hiking we're biking whatever we're literally following in footsteps of people over the past 10,000 years especially here in Arizona and I think that's powerful so I'd like to think that the work that we're doing now to build and maintain and preserve and protect these trails are going to be used for the next few thousand years. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So you do quite a bit of outreach to the community and stuff. The website is pretty awesome. I think that's like, I got a ton of information there and then I, I don't think it's skewed, but I was like, well, what other sources can I find outside of the website to see like what else is being said or how could somebody not just go to the Arizona trail.org, but, um, how how often are you doing those meetups and cleanups and stuff like that? And how do f- people, because I'm going to link to the website and Great. stuff like that. But, you know, how, how do people find that? 
Yeah, we try to provide opportunities, especially for like hands-on trail maintenance all year long. And a lot of those happen on the weekends. And sometimes I look at our calendar and I'm like, wow, there's sometimes there's multiple things happening in different parts of the state on the same weekend. And that's great. And then there's just a lot of people who go out and maintain trail in smaller groups on their own. Um, But literally, it takes thousands of people every year to help care for this thing. So we provide as many opportunities as we possibly can to get people engaged. Because what we found is that once people get their hands dirty, then they're going to be a friend for life. You know, whether that's maintaining the trail, donating or like voting to protect it. Yeah, because everybody has somebody maybe has time somebody has no time but a lot of money yep like it whatever you have to support those things is what you would ideally do for this yeah exactly and even if people don't use the trail that much just knowing that it's this amazing statewide resource it contributes significantly to our you know the state's economy uh and it's also there for you whenever you want it you know it doesn't cost anything there's no fees you drive up to a trailhead and have like this amazing experience in different parts of the state so Mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciate it, sir. I feel like that uh, sums it up. Is there anything that you'd like to share with anybody? Uh, like, what do you have coming up? I mean, I know you're running around a lot, which I have to say <laughs> is, is pretty awesome that you did take the time to sit and connect with me. Absolutely. But. And now I just think that, you know, re- reminding people that nature is an, is an essential part of our existence. And we've worked really hard over the past hundred years or so to disconnect ourselves from nature and the cities we live in, the way that we build houses, the way we've structured our communities. And the more time that we can get outside, I think the closer we get to both each other, you know, as, as community members and as humans, and then also just reconnecting with nature, uh, because that we've been doing for, yeah, I don't know, arguably a million you years. In particular? Now I'm just going to straight up ask you, yeah. what, do you have like a, f- a founding moment that did that for you? Did you have something happen as a kid or something where you just... You'll never forget trying to relive uh, that experience and that connection. You- I wish it were just one experience. It would be so easy to explain. But I think because I grew up in a really small town with access to the outdoors, I spent all of my time outdoors. Uh, a lot of hiking, a lot of running, a lot of fishing, a lot of cycling. And I think that connection kind of made me who I am. I think nature by far my greatest teacher. I have a decent education, so but being outdoors. you have outdoors. all those different experiences. You can uh, connect with all those different types of users. Right? Yeah, ex- exactly. Just being a mountain biker and, and you're sort of skewed for that uh, perspective. Yeah. And the thing that really blew my mind is when I moved from that small town to Tucson. And I think at the time, I was 17 or 18, I came here for bike racing, road racing. And I just took for granted that I had access to the outdoors and I played it and I went fishing and hiking, climbing, all this stuff. And then as I got involved with actually the Sierra Club in Tucson, working with inner city kids, I would go into these schools and talk to these groups. And even though from the school where we were, I could point up at four different mountain ranges and ask any of the kids there, have you guys ever been there? No. How about there? Nope. How about there? Nope. And so even though it was less than 30 minutes from their home, almost every student I was working with had never set foot on a trail literally in their own backyard. That's what blew my mind. And that's when I said, I will do whatever I possibly can to connect as many of these young people with their own backyard as possible. Right. Well, I appreciate what you're doing and and for taking the time out to to connect with me and anybody listening here. So thanks, Eric. Hopefully, yeah. we'll get a chance to have a little adventure on the Arizona Trail. It gets yeah, better all sure, the time. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I'll have to look at uh, what my schedule looks like for training and maybe coming down to Tucson and seeing some of those areas south of there that I haven't gotten to see. Yet, yes, so. please. Or if it gets too warm here in the summer, come up north to Flagstaff. And yeah, I'm always up there in the summer too. All so. right. Okay. Well, thanks. Keep Matt. the good work. Take care. Ben. Appreciate it. All right.
right, there you have it. That's the combo with Matt Nelson, executive director of the Arizona Trail. Super stoked for being able to spend some time with him and catching up on just the complexity that goes on to maintain the Arizona Trail. 800 plus miles of it uh, is quite crazy to think about how much has to take place each and every day and throughout the years to keep that thing up and running and how many volunteers they do need. So you can go to the website in the description below and find places that you can volunteer or you can donate, as we said, if you don't have the the time but you've got some money to help support this. And do your part by understanding how to keep public uh, spaces available for people uh, because you can see there's quite a bit of there's quite a bit of red tape to be able to have the funding necessary to have all of these places that we go and hike and bike and uh, hunt and fish and horseback and camp and off-road like man there's there's quite a thing quite a few things that we can do to screw it up and keep it unavailable for the future generations and and years and years to come so the other thing that was cool is uh, as I saw him walk out to his truck he's got a Tacoma and I was like Oh my God, that's awesome. And I saw that it was donated by the Valley Toyota dealers. So what I really like about having my truck is that it allows me to get to places that I I wasn't able to with my previous vehicle. And it's so funny how you can get all the love in the world from people online and then one or two people say something and those things stick with you the most. And uh, it is super funny because... Uh, I had a comment on one of the posts, uh, you know, I shared that I was with the dogs and my mother and put some photos up of the truck and, um, somebody said, dude, it's just a truck. And, um, I think the reason that I wanted to bring up this conversation with Matt about the complexity of any and all outdoor, um, enthusiasts is that we have this overlap and though, this particular person may have said it's just a truck. Um, it can be to them, but I do see it as a literal and figurative vehicle for the off-road, outdoor truck enthusiasts slash off-road vehicle enthusiasts that I can slide over there and be accepted by that crew and be able to expose them to the things that I'm talking about in here about health and wellness. Um, I don't see it as a just a truck and vice versa. For those of us that are outdoor enthusiasts that now see the opportunities that the, this truck has been able to give me, now it can open your eyes to how cool and fun that can be and how cool and fun the people are that are doing the things that they're doing with the trucks and the off-road. So I don't see it as it's just a truck. I think it's a great opportunity you know, to connect everybody out there and see the similarities versus the differences that we have. So I'm really thankful for uh, the fact that I have that Toyota and that the Valley Dealers here donated to help support the Arizona Trail. So I think they're doing a great job. And shout out, Toyota. <laughs> so we'll, um, we'll catch you on the next uh, episode. And until then, be safe.